Hey guys, Trace here. Welcome back to Seeker Plus. Today we are going to rebroadcast episode 23, which is all about alcohol. From the earliest known alcohol consumption to prohibition to the science of what it actually does to your body, to my body, to our bodies, we're going to cover it all. This is a wild ride, so let's kick into it. So in a study from December of 2014 on the ADH4 enzyme, which is an enzyme that breaks down ethanol or alcohol in our stomachs, researchers found there was a genetic mutation about 10 million years ago that allowed human ancestors an enhanced ability to break down ethanol. Now, why would that happen? The timing is pretty convenient, the scientists say, because that's when ancient ancestors came out of the trees and began to be terrestrial or you know, land-dwelling animals. Scientists think that the ability to eat rotting and fermented fruit that fell out of trees was a way to help our ancestors survive once they moved down onto the ground. Now, obviously, rotting fruit wasn't their first choice, but it was an option that some of us could take advantage of. One model of human alcohol consumption suggested that human ancestors began consuming alcohol after they had the ability to store extra food, or basically after the advent of agriculture. About 11,500 years ago, humans living in the Fertile Crescent, which is near modern-day Saudi Arabia, started domesticating crops like wheat and barley. And as their ability to grow more and more sizable crops increased, so too did their ability to turn those crops into alcohol on a year-long basis. The first evidence of beer production, though, that wasn't until the 4th century BCE in the Zagros Mountains, which is in modern-day Iran. In Western Iran, researchers identified chemical residues of the earliest known beer, and evidence in nearby caves in Armenia showed that the first wine production started at about the same time. The evidence shows that the domestication of the Eurasian grape happened around 6,000 years ago. Egyptians are pretty famous for having brewed beer and wine, and there's actually wine buried with dead kings of Egypt from around 5,100 years ago. And of course, now... It's all over the world. It's brewed in countries across the planet. Everybody's got different varieties and different recipes. But knowing all of that, when it started, why did we do it? I mean, yeah, it gets us drunk, but we'll get to that. But it also maybe was safer than drinking the water right out of the river. Early alcoholic drinks were pretty minimal in their actual alcoholic beverage percentage, less than 3% of alcohol content. And that is less than like a hard lemonade It was kind of lame, but early alcoholic beverages were highly nutritious and they were safer to drink than stored water because of the antimicrobial effects of the alcohol inside of them. In some ancient societies, people would eat the fermented mash byproduct of beer making because that was also highly nutritious, although pretty gross sounding, really. It doesn't smell good either. So today, we still drink this, not because it's, you know, nutritious, but because it can also be maybe good for us. The School of Public Health at Harvard University found that moderate alcohol consumption raises levels of good cholesterol, or high-density lipoproteins, HDL levels. And the higher HDL levels are associated with protection against heart disease. Moderate alcohol consumption has also been linked to things like better sensitivity to insulin, improvements in blood clotting factors. Plus, drinking can actually lengthen your life. A study by the Catholic University of Campobasso found that drinking less to four drinks for men or two drinks for women per day could reduce the risk of death by 18%. It sounds like a pretty sweet deal. 
Drinking alcohol in moderation can also improve libido, help prevent against common cold, decrease chances of developing dementia, reduce the risk of gallstones, lower the chance of diabetes. This is a an amazing substance. However, you know, again, in moderation. We're not saying go out there and drink it all the time. In a 1920 publication of the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine, William White described alcohol as a pleasant depressant, one peculiarly efficacious in inhibiting peripheral impulses, such as pain here and discomfort there, that it diminishes those trivial worries which bother the sick. In the same publication, another physician wrote, alcohol is, I suppose, the most valuable sedative and hypnotic drug we possess for infants and young children. But today we typically view alcohol as like an accompaniment to food, but back in the 20th century, medical professionals were using this and giving it to patients who were suffering fevers and various diseases and afflictions. In some cases, alcohol could comprise as much as 40% of a daily intake of calories for people. It's got a high caloric density at seven calories per gram, and it's easily absorbed into the bloodstream. This made alcohol ideal for patients who are suffering deliriums or for those who are otherwise unable to eat. Now, all that being said, even though it's kind of part of our past, of course, drinking too much alcohol is bad. Like, all the time, it's bad. Don't drink too much alcohol. It's damaging to your body, it's addictive, so forth and so on. But when it comes down to why humans consume alcohol, there's a pretty interesting hypothesis. Evolution. You've brought in one of my BFFs, Natalia Reagan. What's up? How are you doing, Trey? It's good to be back. Thank you, thank you. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about, let me just get this right, drunken monkeys? Drunken monkey hypothesis. Let me say that again. I swear I'm not drunk. Drunken monkey hypothesis. The drunken monkey hypothesis. Yes. We're going to talk a little about why we evolved to be able to drink alcohol, or why we think we evolved to be well, able to. Well, there's this idea, um, actually, by um, it was proposed by uh, Dr. Robert Dudley at uh, UC Berkeley, so just right across oh, the way. Uh-huh. Uh, he was working in Panama with uh, monkeys, and he was thinking, hey, you know, these monkeys are eating fruit at a high level, and, and um, spider monkeys in particular are frugivores, meaning they eat primarily fruit. Okay. And what does fruit have? Ripe fruit? It has ethanol. Mm. And so there's this idea that uh, monkeys were uh, seeking out and sniffing out fruits with higher ethanol content. Why would they do that? Uh, Because possibly they're sweeter, possibly they have more of a caloric intake. Mm -hmm. And so there was a study done in 2013 and 14, actually by uh, Dr. Christina Campbell, who was my thesis advisor, and her student Victoria Weaver uh, in Panama uh, on the... Uh, in the Panama Canal on um, Barro, Colorado Island, they basically looked at all the fruit that was eaten by spider monkeys and basically tested um, if they had ethanol or not. And they found that 85% of the pieces of fruit they picked up had a small degree of ethanol, usually between 1% to 2%. So not, a, I mean... Not like super drunk. No, no, they're not, you know, not spider monkey wasted yet. Got it. Not got quite it, yet. But still a little something to think about. Okay, and then you were showing me this video earlier. In St. Kitts, there's a colony of vervet monkeys... Look this video up. It's amazing. They've become uh, notorious because they steal alcoholic beverages from the tourists in the area because they have also a taste for alcohol, which is insane. You know, it's like primate relatives also like drinking alcohol just like us. But there are other similarities, right? Yeah, there are literally our drunk cousins. 
basically. Cool. I like it. Uh, these vervet monkeys, first of all, they're not endemic to St. Kitts. They were actually brought over hundreds of years ago, and they've been thriving there, much to the chagrin of those that are, you know, have resorts there because right. they're stealing all the tourist drinks. And the cool thing about these monkeys is they actually are the the percentages and the ratio of of those that are teetotalers, uh, moderate drinkers, and excessive drinkers fall in line with with humans. Oh. Uh, so yeah, we're seeing kind of these similarities. However, those that are the excessive drinkers are actually kind of revered. They're the ones that are looked up to, perhaps because they're maybe making more risky choices. Maybe. So all of a sudden it's like your drunk uncle's the cool guy, you know? Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and that's weird. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Well, I mean, <laughs> it does kind of make sense. You know, you're more risky behavior. If you're a risk taker, then you're probably, like, more apt to be the guy that everybody wants to, like, you know, you're the cool guy, I guess, in monkey culture. The bad monkey. The bad boy monkey. Right. Got to get with him. So if some... Monkeys consume alcohol, like primates are consuming this ethanol as well. Humans obviously do that too, but some humans can't. And that's always kind of confounded me. Well, it's not that they can't. They just probably shouldn't. There's a deficiency. They don't have um, the, a, a particular enzyme to break down the acetaldehyde that's actually in the uh, alcohol. That uh, It needs to be broken down to acetate so it can be processed and be eliminated through the body in, in our urine stream. Okay. And when that's not broken down, it becomes toxic and it can build up in your system. It leads to vasodilation. So basically you get that redness of the face. Mm-hmm. You get that Asian flush. Right. That's what it's called. Which I get sometimes. Um, yeah, do you? Yeah, a little bit. You've got a little like pinkness going like on now. Pink, what's in, what's in that coffee? In uh, <laughs> uh, it's also called the alcohol flush reaction. So that right there is a sign that maybe you should lay off the alcohol. However, hmm. in China, when markets were opening up about 15 years ago, there was an influx and in, uh, an availability of alcohol. And hmm. um, you can become almost immune to this. To the flush reaction. Uh, exactly. Which, but that doesn't mean that it, you're not building up the toxin. It just means that you're able to do it oh. and maybe survive you longer. You're more tolerant to the toxin exactly. as well, and that's bad. That's bad. And so that's something that we have to really consider when we're looking at alcohol poisoning throughout the ages. Right, yeah. And alcohol poisoning is sort of commonly connected to being blackout drunk. But oh, they're yeah. not necessarily the same thing. Being blackout drunk is, doesn't mean you're on your way to alcohol poisoning necessarily because some people don't even get blackout drunk, no matter how much they drink, for some reason. But blackout drunk has two different types. There's N-block and then there's fragmentary. What's N-block all about? Oh, N-block's scary. N-block is basically you, you lose chunks of time. It's as if you've passed out, but you haven't passed out. You could have had conversations. You could have had right. intercourse. You could have gotten in a fist fight with a monkey. You don't even know what you did, but you are just gone for, like, chunks of time. Right. So you're so I look at it like your brain stops writing down your memories. It, it, sto- it, like, it hits the, the stop re- button on its recording. Yes. Like, it's not <laughs> recording things. You're still there. You're still... Basically, your same self, you know, a, a drunken version of that, but your brain isn't writing that down anymore, so you don't necessarily know what's going on. And then fragmentary is then, I imagine, one step back from that. It's the brownout stage. If blackouts are in block, then a brownout would be like fragmentary loss yeah, of memory. coming in and out. Yeah, and but so b- both of these are caused by kind of the same deal. It's just one is a little more severe. Extreme, yeah. And actually, there was a study done in 1970 uh, by Goodwin and colleagues, and I'm not sure how ethical the study was, uh, looking at the impact of acute alcohol exposure and memory mm-hmm. because they wanted to understand what exactly a causes uh, blackouts and, uh, you know, does it have anything to do with um, long-term and short-term uh, memory retainment. And this study was done in St. Louis, uh, again, in 1970. And so basically all, they found 10 
10 subjects, um, all of them identified as being alcoholic, nine of which were actually pulled from unemployment offices. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. This was a party. And wow. they took them to a lab, and they actually asked them to consume roughly 16 to 18 ounces of 86-proof bourbon in approximately four hours. Holy crap. Ouch. That's I, a lot. Yeah, I would, that's dead for me. That's um, a lot of bourbon. <laughs> and beginning after just an hour, the subjects were asked to, to do some memory games. And um, they were given different stimuli, including, and this is where it gets a little funky, yeah. children's toys and scenes from erotic films. Because children's toys and erotic films really help people remember things, I guess, what somehow. What the hell? So, yeah, I, I was reading about this when we, were, when we were making our notes for this episode, and it says that most of the subjects seem to be able to recall the stimulus just a couple of minutes after the presentation. But 24 hours later, they couldn't recall it at all. They were, they were blacked out at the time. So even though at the time, like talking yeah. to them, they're like, oh, yeah, this just happened. It's cool. But the next day, they're like, what are you talking about? Mr. Potato I was playing with children's toys while watching, <laughs> I don't know, insert porn parody name here. But some people have blackouts and some people don't. And it usually connects to their, uh, their basically they're not moving memories from their short-term memory into their long-term memory. So mm-hmm. you can tell when your friend's blacked out because you're talking to them and they kind of have the same conversations on repeat. They're saying the same thing like, man, we should get out of here. And then you're talking to them like, no, we're going to stay a little bit because Natalia and I are having a good time. And then, then a couple minutes later, man, we should get out of here. Like everybody has a friend who's been to that point and that is exactly where drunk Jim was at that time he wasn't moving to his long-term memory but some people don't have blackouts at all like they just don't get them right there was another study uh, that some people are more susceptible than others to blackouts and memory loss and it said the difference shows different responses in the hippocampus in the brain and the researchers studied 24 different college students who routinely have two or three nights out with about five drinks per night that's uh, that's quite a few it sounds yeah, like you know spending all their money on their uh, that's a lot of money, yeah. Booze. That's true. Man. And so this is considered binge drinking, by the way. Binge drinking that's that's in that level. So they separated them into two groups: those who have a history of blackouts and those who don't. And they paired them up based on level of drinking experience. Then they scanned their brains while they were performing memory tasks, while they were either sober or after they drank a little bit. In the sober groups, they showed two you know very similar brain patterns. It was basically the same. But when they were drinking, there were huge differences in brain patterns. And they only drank to, like, the legal limit, about 0.08 on the BAC level. And those who were prone to blackouts had decreased activity in parts of the brain responsible for turning experiences into memories, as well as attention and cognitive functioning. See, that's scary. Yeah. Yeah, and that, And actually... Weirdly, though, all those uh, those individuals that were having issues, and there, there was brain, you know, they were showing, um, you know, changes in the hippocampus. At that moment, they felt like they were fine. So, mm. which is also more disturbing. I mean, imagine if you were at a party and you 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 think you're fine, right. but you're actually your you know your brain is reacting in a way that you probably should not be drinking. It's troubling, and that's one of those things that I think this is important for, especially students starting school. You know, because yeah. that's, that's if you didn't drink in high school and you just all of a sudden you get to college and you're blacking out, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, luckily I, I'm not prone to blackouts, but I didn't drink when I was younger. I only drank when I was a little older. So it was like for me, I would you yeah. wouldn't know where your limit is anymore. Like you wouldn't know. You'd never have learned that, and it doesn't just like come all of a sudden. You'll have your first beer, and you're like, I can only have three of these. <laughs> like it takes a little while to get used to and figure out where your limit is. Uh, study researcher Reagan Weatherill, PhD, University of Pennsylvania, okay. has a quote, and it says. What could be happening is that some individuals have a brain which can handle or compensate to a certain point. But 
if you put a cognitive load on it like alcohol, it gets overloaded and things aren't working as efficiently. Also, yeah, good name, Reagan. Right? It's yeah, good. not so bad. That's nice. I actually, this quote really rattled me um, because of all this talk about blackouts. Uh, if recreational drugs were tools, alcohol would be a sledgehammer. And their point there is that alcohol affects all your faculties, right. all of them, yeah. um, and not always in the best ways. We, you know, you've talked about some benefits. However, there are some pretty uh, scary side effects, too. Absolutely. So yeah. Drink responsibly, children. Very much so. By children, I mean adults. Responsibly, people who are over 21 over in the 21. United States, except for on Native American reservations. We'll get to that later. Okay. We'll get to that later. But when it comes to alcohol, a lot of people associate different alcohols with different levels of, like, party time. You know, some people say, I only black out when I drink blank. You know, gin and, you know, whiskey makes you fight and tequila makes your clothes come off Rum or makes whatever. makes me turn into Bridget. Exactly, you know. But there is actually... No scientific evidence that Bridget should exist more for rum than any other type of <laughs> <No>. alcohol. <laughs> Bridget should just show up. She should. I, all she'll the time. be here anytime. I mean, <laughs> depends how many more coffees we have. <laughs> but uh, there is some science that shows that there are. Uh, have you heard of these congeners? Yes. Yeah, congeners, which are they make hangovers worse, mm-hmm. and they're part of like the byproducts of the distilling process. But there's nothing that points to the, like whiskey making you fight more than anything else. No, there's no scientific data that uh, these alcohols affect anybody differently. So no matter what, no matter what you're drunk on, you're always the same drunk. Correct. Cool. So there was a study in 1970 that monitored eight men, and four of them uh, drank bourbon for nine days and then switched to vodka for another nine. It's a, mm-hmm. lot, of, a lot of drinking. That's a lot of drinking. These studies. Uh, the other four men started on 86-proof liquor that was mixed with caramel and then switched to bourbon. Got it. Okay. And But regardless of the liquor or the congeners added, uh, they all behaved the same, starting with being more sociable and then becoming more depressed and then hostile when they continued to drink. So... Maybe just don't get to that point, people. Right, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. maybe just, you know, cut off at two. I don't know. I've had this conversation with other friends who feel like they get different drunk and different alcohols, and it comes down to psychology. You know, if maybe you only drink tequila when you're doing shots, right? And if you only drink tequila when you're doing shots, you're probably only doing shots because it's that kind of night. Yeah. And if it's that kind of night, then your clothes come off. And that's, and it's not the tequila, it's because of the psychology of what you drink at different times and what you drink in different occasions, you know? You know, you might have a night where I do whiskey shots, and whiskey shots are when you're depressed, and then you're fighting people because you're drinking the whiskey. Yeah. But it's not because of the whiskey. It's because of the psychology going into That's drinking true. And people ought to remember that uh, when drinking, when if you're, you suffer from depression already or you're feeling already a little bit depressed and you drink alcohol, which is a depressant, right. yeah. recipe for disaster. Yeah. So um, yeah. that's something to be considered. Of course, there are also animals that can drink alcohol and not feel any of these effects. For example, my hero, the tree shrew. The Malaysian pentailed tree shrew, in fact, uh, its diet is 100% beer. 100%. Wow. Live science. Some college students like that. Yeah. It drinks the fermented nectar of the Burton palm plant, and it's not like a lot of alcohol in this nectar, but it's 3.8% alcohol content. The thing is, it just doesn't exhibit any drunkenness. No matter how much of that ethanol it's consuming, Hmm. they don't seem to exhibit drunk behavior the way that other animals do, which is kind of crazy. That is pretty neat. They think by studying this, they can learn how to treat alcohol poisoning in the future, which is pretty awesome. That would be awesome, actually, especially with binge drinking in college. Absolutely, which is an affliction that many of us have suffered. I think alcohol poisoning is actually a huge problem all over the world. It's not just here, and it's Mm -hmm. not just in college. And that's why we make laws to combat and regulate 
alcohol, you know, for various populations. We've even tried to prohibit consumption of alcohol completely. Remember Prohibition? Oh, vaguely. Yeah, I was, yeah. yeah, I was about 10. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you, Natalia, for coming and talking to us about the drunken monkey hypothesis and about blackouts and about how it, our brains are affected. Where can people find more of your awesome stuff? Well, you can go to YouTube. Uh, I'm at Natalia13Reagan, uh, and you can see some fun videos about the evolution of boobs and butts and monkeys, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Natalia13Reagan. Cool. Before I explain anything else, I want to tell you about the socks that I'm wearing right now because they are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They are called Bombas, and their arch support system and stay-up technology make for a sock that stays in place while giving you all the support where you need it. All of my other socks, they're just not good enough anymore, right? Go to bombas.com seeker. Use the code seeker for 20% off your first order of Bombas. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash seeker. Code seeker. You'll get 20% off your first order. Okay. Back to the science. We're going to talk a little bit about whether our society is alcoholic. So the U.S. drinking age and the laws surrounding alcohol in the U.S. have been a little bit convoluted, to say the least. Drinking age laws are not, I say laws because it's not one law. There's no federal drinking age. There are state drinking ages that the federal government kind of forces to be 21. Now, let me explain that. Before the minimum age drinking law, 16 to 20-year-olds were the most common drunken drivers. But when the drinking age was raised, the number of fatal crashes involving a young driver dropped significantly from 61% in 1982 to only 31% in 1985. So even though state laws were the ones governing drinking ages, there were times when, like, Ohio had an 18 drinking age and Michigan was 21. So the federal government tied highway funding to state-level laws on drinking age. And in doing so, everyone raised their drinking ages to 21. Now, pretty much all states have a 21-year-old drinking age. Some people think it's 21 because of English common law. 21 is the age at which a person could vote and become a knight. But at the end of the day, no American is going to become a knight. It's just an arbitrary age, 21, that they picked. FDR led the charge in the U.S. to lower the drinking age in some states to 18 during World War II, but that didn't really last long because of increased traffic fatalities. And I say that most places have drinking ages that are 21 because there have been loopholes throughout history too. Up until 1995, Louisiana made it illegal for minors to purchase alcohol, but it wasn't illegal to sell to minors. So if a cop caught a minor with alcohol, the store owner who sold them the alcohol doesn't get prosecuted, just the person who purchased it if they were underage. Indian reservations, which we mentioned earlier, are considered domestic sovereigns. It's their own nation, and therefore they manage their own drinking laws, though most have enforced a 21-year-old age limit anyway. Um, but worries over drunkenness pervade pretty much all of society, and they hit their peak in the early 1900s and there was an attempt to ban it altogether, which now we refer to collectively as prohibition. Prohibition lasted from 1920 to 1933, and what they were attempting to do is reduce crime and solve social problems and reduce the tax burden created by prisons and poorhouses and improve health and hygiene, and all of those things were somehow tied to the consumption of alcohol. Of course, we now know prohibition failed uh, because of the will of the American people. We're very innovative when it comes to our drink. The 18th Amendment prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages. 
or intoxicating beverages, as they called them. It did not outlaw, you may have noticed, possession or consumption of alcohol, just transportation, sale, and manufacture. Therefore, people found endless ways of smuggling it and then, you know, possessing and consuming it. But we don't have enough time to get into all of those things. Maybe we'll just do a prohibition week or something. If you're interested, you can tell us. There are tons of loopholes in this amendment. That's why it's important to craft like legal language well. Americans were allowed to obtain wine for religious purposes. So enrollments at churches and synagogues saw a huge increase during Prohibition. The number of self-professed rabbis who could obtain wine for their congregations increased a lot. Pharmacists were allowed to dispense whiskey by prescription, so bootleggers found that running pharmacies could be extra profitable, and the number of registered pharmacists in the state of New York tripled during Prohibition. In the end, it obviously just just it didn't work. The, the legal language wasn't there, and people wanted to drink their alcohol. Alcohol consumption fell at the beginning of Prohibition, but ended up increasing overall throughout Prohibition because it was like this cool, hip, like, ooh, anti-counterculture kind of feel to it. And, you know, like they always say with books, if you want everybody to read a book, ban it. This is a similar idea. Like a lot of unregulated illegal substances, the alcohol itself became more dangerous to consume. No one was looking at what people were putting in their alcohol. They could water it down, but they could also put other stuff in there. On top of that, prohibition caused crime to increase and criminals to become organized and create these huge rings and mafias. The court and prison systems were overwhelmed with people who were consuming, manufacturing alcohol. The corruption of public officials was out of control. Tax revenues fell. There was increased government spending to try and handle all this. And then the side effect of prohibition, some drinkers just went and switched to hard drugs, many of which weren't illegal at the time. We are not the only country to attempt prohibition, so don't look negatively upon us, you know. Canada tried it from 1911 to 1920. Australia, similar time period until 1928. Soviet Union from 1914 to 23. Finland from 1919 to 32. And that's just a few of them that tried prohibition. There are other alternatives to prohibition, though. And that is a study found that the cost of alcohol and the number of places to buy it play a major role in how communities suffer from the effects of binge drinking. So, for example... When the price of alcohol goes up 10%, the consumption of alcohol declines by 7%. Now, you can only make it so expensive before people are just going to go back to, like, prohibition stuff. They're going to find a different way to get it. But if you can find that balance, you're going to decrease a lot of your consumption while getting more tax revenue. The World Health Organization has also outlined a few strategies, like having policies in place to catch alcoholics before they get too bad and start affecting wider society, addressing the marketing of alcoholic beverages, you know, not marketing alcoholic beverages to children or marketing them in a way that makes them kind of seem more fun than they really are and not saying, you know, please drink responsibly, stuff like that, and adjusting pricing and availability. You know, some states like Michigan, where I'm from, you can't put alcohol on sale. In other states, that's not the case. In some states, they make it so you can't buy alcohol on Sundays or after certain times or before certain times. All of those are ways to kind of curb our consumption. But to wrap it up, people go to any length they can to get their booze. If you make it completely illegal, they will find a way around that. But when it comes to getting booze into our bodies, even when it's legal— We're going to go to the extremes because we're humans and I think everybody can expect that. The weirdest one, I think, on this whole list, we're just going to kick it right off, prison wine. 
Prison wine, you guys. This is a thing. Prison wine's common ingredients are fruit, syrup, ketchup, bread, and sugar. Plus time, not the spice or the herb. Time like TikTok. It's left in a bag hidden in a toilet so it can ferment and turn into alcohol. And this sounds like the worst idea ever, but this is just, you know, how humans are willing to go to the extremes to get alcohol. It tastes awful, allegedly. I have not had it, but it tastes awful. Supposedly it tastes like, quote, in my notes here, sugared vomit. Yum. There is one huge negative, aside from the fact that you're drinking something that was made in a toilet and came out of a bag in a prison. There is another negative to this, botulism. You can get botulism from drinking prison wine, also called, by the way, prison hooch or pruno. Botulism is a life-threatening toxin, and it can cause paralysis. It's bad, although it is the basic ingredient of Botox, which also causes you know, micro-paralysis. That's a whole other thing, though. There's moonshine. Moonshine is another extreme, and it's a more traditional one, and that's a high-proof alcohol, essentially, and they distill it traditionally out away from the public. The reason being, most moonshine is illegal to make. We have a show about this on our parent company's network. Seen it. It's okay. It's a pretty good show. But the problem with moonshine is it can actually kill people if you're not being sterile enough, or if you brew it or distill it rather wrong. And it was one of the drinks of choice during Prohibition because it was high alcohol content and it could be smuggled fairly easily and made at home. There's also space alcohol. I know that sounds weird, but there is alcohol in space. The Russians have vodka in space, but NASA has a no alcohol policy. No alkies in the spaceies. Not happening. But that wasn't always the case. In the 1970s, they planned to send Sherry to the Skylab space station, but they were testing this because it's NASA. Of course they were. They had to test it first, and they test it using the Vomit Comet, which you are, if you're not familiar with the Vomit Comet, it's a, it's a large airplane that flies in a parabolic trajectory. So it'll go up, and then it'll drop precipitously, and that gives the people inside the illusion of microgravity similar to space. So they would test the wine Sherry in the Vomit Comet, and the wine added to the effects of nausea experienced by the people in the Vomit Comet. Uh, So they decided that might not be great. But the real reason that they don't send it up there is because astronauts, I mean, it's, it's weird to say, but like astronauts shouldn't get drunk, right? That's basically what people feel like. Astronauts are this symbol for like American pride and NASA received angry letters from the public saying booze should not go to space. Scientist astronaut Edward G. Gibson, who flew on the third Skylab mission, he put it uh, like this, quote, we astronauts kind of represent a form of purity. As soon as you taint that purity with alcohol, people get really upset. That makes sense. You know, when you think of astronauts, like you don't want to think of Buzz Aldrin out there on the moon having a lonely party with Neil. You want to think of them like doing really great work and like being out there for altruistic reasons. It might suck for the guys and gals who are sitting in space for a long time, but you know what? That's too bad. They can just ask the Russians. Maybe be like, what's up, buddy? Got you some vodka? In August of 2014, a Japanese company, Suntory Global Innovation Center, sent various types of distilled liquor to space. But it wasn't for drinking. This is super interesting. They were trying to figure out why booze mellows with age. 
So they're going to retrieve the liquor two years from now, and then they're going to study it, and they're going to compare that to samples that were on Earth and see what happens, see if it's different when it's up in, in space. That's kind of cool, right? But when it comes to, like, space-age stuff, a lot of times people think of, like, changing something. Like, think of space-age alcohol. You probably don't think of it as, like, a glass of whiskey with, a gla- like, with an ice cube in it. You probably think of it as some, like, advanced technology or something, and that's where palcohol comes in. I'm not saying palcohol is advanced technology, but this is a way that we've taken alcohol, a thing that was perfectly good already, and turned it into something else. Palcohol is a powdered alcohol. You mix it with, you know, cola or juice or even just water, and each pouch of powder is equal to one shot. The powder is essentially a distilled vodka or rum, and then they put it through a a process that turns it into an alcohol. It binds with these little powdered crystals. And that can be used to smuggle booze into places that you probably shouldn't. Hopefully not space, astronauts. Don't smuggle this into space. People don't like that. But you could get it into, say, a concert or a festival or something. And that's kind of part of the idea of this stuff. It's a way to transport alcohol simply without having to make it into a liquid bottle of some kind. You can also breathe alcohol. This is another, like, futuristic-feeling thing. I mean, inhaling the vapors of alcohol would get you drunk. They vaporize it, and then they put it in this room. It's actually done in a bar in London. We talked about it over on D News if you want to know more about it. But none of the alcohol is then metabolized by the stomach. You actually absorb it through your skin. You breathe it in and absorb it through your lungs. And you absorb it through your eyeballs. Yep. Your eyeballs. It's weird. It's quicker, it's more concentrated, and it gets you intoxicated very quickly. At that bar that I mentioned, they actually make patrons wear ponchos so they don't absorb too much alcohol too quickly. The problem being, that bypasses the stomach and the liver in the digestive system, and it just goes right through the skin into the bloodstream. And that process bypasses our damage control systems. You know, the liver helps metabolize and break down the alcohol, and without that process, it can get pretty dangerous. So vaping alcohol is more dangerous in some ways because you don't feel the effects of alcohol poisoning as easily. You don't, you know, feel sick, and you don't get that, like, vomity feeling because of the way it's absorbed. It's not being processed in the same way by the body. But since we bring that up, that's how your body tells you you should stop drinking. Because alcohol is essentially a poison. You are poisoning your body. And you can get damage permanently from doing so. So your body tells you, I'm full. I feel sick. Please stop. And if you don't, then it makes you take that alcohol and and rapidly ejects it from your body. It happens. And when people think of that, they usually think of binge drinking, right? But binge drinking is actually way less than that. There's something called the 5-4 limit. It's, a, it's what constitutes binge drinking. And that means if a man consumes more than five drinks or a woman more than four over a two-hour period, then he or she is officially binge drinking. Binge drinking is not that much alcohol. I mean, two drinks in an hour for women, two and a half for men. And binge drinking may seem like kind of like, oh, binge drinking, whatever. It kills six Americans every day. Binge drinking. Clinical psychologist Dr. Michael Mantel says that any type of binging are ways of dealing with negative emotions that are not rational or healthy. And for the record, once someone feels a need to binge drink in private or schedule binges around or instead of work and social obligations, if you have a friend who's doing that, you might want to encourage them to seek help. 
I mean, this is a serious issue. Drinking is addicting. Drinking is damaging. Drinking is poisonous. And yeah, we're kind of making jokes and trying to make light of alcohol and alcohol culture, but some people handle it differently. And we don't always understand why that is, but it can happen. A study shows that roughly 65% of, of college students aged 18 to 22 in general drink alcohol in any given month. And according to another study from Harvard, seven out of 10 students are consuming five or more drinks in a row, which means they could be putting themselves in that binge drinking range. And if that continues throughout college and then after college and then throughout their lives, that can be an indicator for some pretty negative stuff. That being said, not to end on a negative, binge drinking is serious, but you can drink and not have serious effects and not become addicted to it. It's not, it doesn't work like that. You know, drinking can be part of a normal everyday experience. And then usually after that, you're going to get a hangover. That's your body's way of telling you, this didn't go as well as I'd planned. Everyone has a different tolerance level when it comes to hangovers. Men's are usually higher than women's. Sorry, ladies, but that has to do with how our bodies work. And, the, you know, our bodies are slightly larger than women's bodies on average. But anyone who drinks a little too much, regardless of your physical makeup, can be exposed to a ton of discomfort. We're talking headaches, nausea, fatigue, anxiety, trembling, diarrhea. It's pretty miserable, or so I've heard. I actually, my weird superpower is I don't get hangovers that often. It's happened a couple times in my life, but this doesn't happen to me that much, so I don't, I don't really know. I'm talking about this from a purely academic sense. But the causes of a hangover are pretty interesting. A lot of this comes from being dehydrated. You know, urination increases once you've, quote, broken the seal, even though that's not a thing. That's not a thing. There's no such thing as breaking the seal. When you drink alcohol, it makes your way into your bloodstream, and it tells your pituitary gland not to produce vasopressin. It's a hormone that typically keeps your body lubed up with moisture. Without the vasopressin, liquids that are consumed, like you do when you drink, go right to the bladder, which is why you urinate so often while you're drinking. So they don't get processed in the same way. And when they don't get processed in that way, you will become dehydrated. The immune system also responds to alcohol consumption by inflaming. There's this poison in my body. Oh my gosh, I have to do something about it, which can affect your appetite, your concentration, and your memory. And it also makes you feel a little puffy or bloated. There's also stomach irritation, which can happen, which is where it slows down the rate at which the stomach empties itself, also causing you to feel kind of full and can lead to nausea, vomiting, or stomach aches. There's a drop in blood sugar, which, is, uh, which can result in shakiness, moodiness, tiredness, and just general weakness kind of across the board. And if it gets really low, it can cause seizures. But blood sugar levels also will just drop steeply as you're drinking. There's dilation of blood vessels, which we were talking about earlier, which is, uh, you know, basically this vasodilation causes flushing and headaches. It can cause all sorts of stuff. There's sleep quality interruption. You might think, oh, I sleep better when I've had a few drinks, but you actually aren't sleeping better. You're just sleeping kind of harder. Your body doesn't get to do the normal sleep cycle the way it would, and you can wake up kind of feel kind of tired and sleepy. There's also congeners. Congeners are substances that are produced during fermentation and are responsible for most of the taste and aroma of alcohol, like, you know, why whiskey and gin taste and smell the way they do. And they can contribute to the symptoms of a hangover, not the drunkenness necessarily, but the hangover. There are usually esters and aldehydes. But 
There's no way to cure this thing. This is a whole bunch of different stuff that comes together to give what we call a hangover. So eating bread or you know, bacon is not going to cure all of this stuff. Bacon doesn't lower, like, like make your blood vessels constrict and make your stomach empty better and stop things being sent to the bladder when they're not supposed to. Like that, that bacon's great, but it's not that great. There's actually no hangover cure that, that has been proven to work by science. The National Health Service in the UK says there is no treatment for a hangover. The best way to avoid a hangover, as they say, is to either, one, not drink, <laughs> or two, drink sensibly and within the recommended limits. Sounds very National Health Service. Thank you, Britons. Uh, according to Medical News Today, hangovers have to run their course. They just have to be waited out. And that can be best done by resting, drinking plenty of water to treat the symptoms, you know, the dehydration symptoms, and also painkillers, potentially. If you have a headache, you can treat that symptom as well. But you can't fix the hangover as a whole. The hair of the dog is a kind of mythical cure, but you shouldn't believe that. That doesn't make you no longer hungover. It just makes you feel better about the hangover that you have. But when you drink alcohol and you already are feeling the effects of the alcohol you drank yesterday, it might just make your hangover more severe in the long run. So the hair of the dog doesn't have any scientific basis whatsoever either. In the end, people are going to drink. We know this. We talked about it earlier. People drink for a variety of different reasons, though. I mean, there are people who don't drink. More power to y'all. It's great. There's nothing wrong with being a person who drinks or being a teetotaler. It's no big deal. But for most people, and for many people, drinking is a social activity. You know, they call it a social lubricant. They call it liquid courage. They have a cultural or ceremonial tradition connected to alcohol. Alcohol is ingrained in much of our culture. For example... Many countries believe that if you don't look each other straight in the eyes during a clinking of the glass, you could be punished with you know, bad sex or bad luck or you know, something for years. In many countries, you're not supposed to pour your own drink. And instead, everyone should just monitor their friends and make sure everybody's topped off. And in Japan, for example, that is a gesture of companionship and demonstrates the respect for one's drinking buddies. In China, elders hold their drinks a little higher than the rest of the group. In Russia, the older generation is known to take a shot of vodka to kick off a business meeting. And of course, here in America, drinks are connected to all sorts of things, from, you know, brunch, but also to, like, open bars at weddings, bar mitzvahs, eggnogs on Christmas, champagnes on New Year's, you know, all sorts of things. Alcohol is sort of part of these cultural experiences, and they have been for a long, long time. There's even like modern stuff, like bringing alcohol to a house party and then, you know, leaving it behind. That's the polite thing to do. You know, you don't show up empty-handed. We've been doing this forever, and we're going to keep doing it. Whether people feel strongly about alcohol in the positive or the negative is great. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. But even when people compare alcohol and other things, alcohol has been part of a human society for so long that it's hard to say we can just get rid of it. We can't just brush it aside. But that being said, we should also look at it critically, just like we would anything else in human society. Drinking responsibly is a slogan that you hear a lot, but it's also important. We should be thinking more about why we're drinking, how we're drinking. My mom always said, don't just drink to get drunk. You know, you should go maybe drink with your friend to have a drink with your friend, but don't go out to get blacked out. That's not healthy. Again, you do you, but that's my mom. I gotta you know, listen to my mom. 
But like I said, in the end, we're all going to do this, or most of us are going to do this. And we're going to do it all over the world, and maybe we're going to take it to space and go to another world with this stuff too. And that's going to bring a whole new set of challenges, which is pretty cool too. Thanks so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. I really hope that you loved this episode. If you did, leave us a rating. Share us with your friends. If you have comments, come find us on Twitter at Seeker or me at Trace Dominguez. Make sure you come find us as well on all our other shows. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're easy to find, and they're awesome. I'm Trace. Thanks for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll see you next time.